Hello, everybody. This is a different sort of podcast than I typically release on the YouTube channel. It is a Q&A with subscribers to my Patreon. This is something that I've been trying to do every month where people who subscribe to the Patreon record themselves asking questions, and I record answers to as many of the questions as I possibly can. This has become one of my favorite aspects of the podcast because I get to learn about what listeners are interested in and often learn an enormous amount thinking about the questions and answering them. I listen to all of the questions that Patreon subscribers submit and do my best to answer all of them each month. The reason that I'm releasing this is I want to make some of the people who listen to this podcast on YouTube and Spotify aware of the Patreon-exclusive features. In addition to the Patreon being completely ad-free, it's also where the majority of this podcast can be listened to. I only release about a quarter of the episodes on YouTube and Spotify. The majority of it is exclusive to patreon.com. So by subscribing to the Patreon, not only do you get hundreds of hours of ad-free podcasts, but you also have the ability to ask questions in the Q&A, and each podcast is accompanied by dozens of PDFs of scientific articles and books and sometimes videos to support the discussion. I think it's a much better experience. This podcast would not be possible to release publicly without the support of sponsors because pretty much every video that I release is demonetized. So I understand that nobody likes advertising, but it is the sponsors and the Patreon subscribers that make any of this possible. So if you want to ask questions in the next Q&A or see the supporting documents for these discussions, go to patreon.com slash Hamilton. Morris. Hi, Hamilton. Thank you for taking my question. For a maclobalite pharmawaska trip with either freebase or fumarate synthetic DMT, which one would be preferable, and what is a good starting dose for a respectable, though no, not overwhelming first experience? I have done ayahuasca in the past and have enjoyed uh, some fairly strong trips. I would also appreciate your thoughts on adding tetrahydroharmine uh, to the pharmawaska. I'm... It might have been placebo, but I've used it in the past with mushrooms, and it seemed to make for a more colorful experience. Don't know how it would uh, combine with maclobamide. Thank you. Ah, this is one of my favorite subjects, pharmawaska. So the first part of the question touches on an area that is very prominent in forum folk pharmacology. And this is the idea that a drug has to be a salt if it is to be consumed orally. And you can find lots of reports of people on various forums doing things like converting AMT to a salt before consuming it. And people will talk about DMT fumarate as if that is the preparation that is ideal for oral consumption and that freebase is somehow unsuitable. To be clear, that is not the case. 
Salt preparations are extremely important if you are administering a drug via IV injection because water solubility is key. And if you're smoking something, it typically has to be the freebase. This was discussed in the previous Q&A. But if you're taking a drug that has a basic nitrogen atom orally, the pKa of that nitrogen is high enough that it will be protonated as soon as you consume it. So if you consume DMT freebase, you are going to have DMT hydrochloride as soon as it hits your stomach. The acidity of your stomach is more than sufficient to protonate every bit of DMT that you are consuming. As an added twist, this protonated form is likely not what is actually being absorbed into the bloodstream. It is likely the case, at least for most drugs that have a basic nitrogen atom, that they are absorbed in the small intestine, which in some locations has a pH that is as high as eight. This is high enough that the DMT is partially deprotonated and can then partition across the intestine into the blood. In the blood, the pH is around 7.4, so the DMT will be largely protonated, probably somewhere around 90% of it will be protonated, but it will have enough deprotonated DMT to partition into the brain where it binds with various receptors and does the thing that DMT does. So this is kind of the interesting dance of protonation that mediates absorption of any drug containing a amine. It often goes from protonated to deprotonated to protonated to deprotonated to protonated once again when bound to the receptor. This is all to say it doesn't matter. If you consume DMT freebase, it will be immediately converted to the hydrochloride once it enters your stomach. If you consume DMT fumarate, the effect will be the same. There is an added advantage in using the freebase, which is that the dosing has the potential to be more precise than dosing the fumarate salt. And the reason for that is that fumaric acid salts can exhibit variations in their stoichiometry. So you can have a stoichiometric fumarate salt where there is one DMT molecule for every fumaric acid molecule, or you can have a hemifumarate salt where each side of the fumaric acid molecule is bound to a DMT molecule. And you can have combinations of the two as well. You can also have excess fumaric acid very easily if you don't do a ton of washing with acetone and recrystallizations. So I would say that from the perspective of precision dosing, it makes a lot more sense to use the freebase. And I always use the freebase myself. And just to be 100% clear, in case I lost anyone with this sort of convoluted explanation, the reason that these different salts matter is because they all have different potencies. And unless you have access to NMR or other analytical instruments, it's very difficult to tell the difference between DMT fumarate, DMT hemifumarate, and DMT fumarate that is contaminated with excess fumaric acid. Even though DMT is often dosed very casually in smoked DMT or ayahuasca, the reality is that it has a pretty steep dose response curve. In terms of my pharmawasca methodology, I have a tried and true method that 
I have had great success with. That is to take 300 milligrams of meclobamide orally exactly one hour before consuming DMT free base in a capsule. I have created a sort of personal dose response curve based on years of experimentation. And for me, under those circumstances, also I should say that I typically fast for the day that I do this, 35 milligrams of DMT is too little. 40 milligrams is where things begin to become wonderful and ayahuasca-like. 50 milligrams is also wonderful, but is where the first hints of threatening or frightening or uncomfortable psychological territory manifest. And 75 milligrams will deconstruct everything I've ever known. So 75 milligrams is the absolute maximum I've ever consumed. I would never want to consume more. I don't think I would ever want to consume 75 milligrams again. So I find the most benefit in the 50 to 60 milligram range. If you've seen the episode of Tales from the Trip that I'm on, the intense pharmawaska voyage that I'm describing is from 75 milligrams of DMT freebase combined with 300 milligrams of meclobamide. As for tetrahydroharmine, I don't have enough experience using purified material to comment on its psychoactivity or what sorts of contributions it may or may not make to the ayahuasca experience. The ayahuasca-derived beta-carbolines are psychoactive in and of themselves without the DMT. For many people, that is a desirable feature. For me, in my experience, it tends to be undesirable. And I find that the ayahuasca beta-carbolines confer a sedative and almost deliriant quality to the experience, whereas meclobamide allows for a transparent, physically benign, highly sharp DMT experience, which is what I am looking for personally, but there's no right or wrong way to do these things as long as you're being safe. But for many people, the contribution of the beta-carbolines is desirable, and I would like to revisit that one day. It's well known that the cannabis plant contains a wide variety of fascinating phytochemicals. It's one of the most studied plants in the world. And so I'm always amazed when researchers discover new compounds in cannabis. What was especially amazing is that in 2019, a group of researchers in Italy found a new cannabinoid called THCP that is structurally very similar to THC, but it has a seven carbon chain instead of a five carbon chain. The extension of that chain gives THCP much greater potency. So at the CB1 receptor, which is responsible for the stoning effects of THC, THCP binds with 33 times higher affinity, making it the strongest known phytocannabinoid. I thought that this would remain a obscure scientific curiosity, and I was amazed to find that within three years of its discovery, techniques had been developed to industrially produce THCP from hemp. I saw that canaclear.com was selling it. I independently ordered a sample, analyzed it via NMR, and found that the material was bona fide. So if you are interested in THCP, Delta-8 THC, HHC, 
or any other unusual phytocannabinoids, go to canaclear.com. All of their materials are third-party tested for quality and compliance, and if you use the code HAMILTON, you will get 15% off any purchases. Thank you, Canaclear. Hi, Hamilton. So um, I was just wondering how confident somebody could be in the hydrolyzation or partial hydrolyzation of 4-ACO-MET into 4-HO-MET. Um, because there's not a lot of or any research actually about that. Shulgin in T-Call said that it was basically indistinguishable from 4-ACO-DMT, and in your experience, has that been true or no? So you're right that this particular question of whether 4-acetoxy-MET is hydrolyzed in vivo to form 4-hydroxy-MET has not really been carefully studied. There is a bit of work in the surrounding territory, but I think one can be very confident that it is partially or likely completely hydrolyzed. And the reason for that is that while this question of this particular hydrolysis process is somewhat obscure, the larger literature on hydrolysis of acetate esters and even more specifically aromatic acetate esters is extremely in-depth. There are a vast number of pharmaceutical substances, perhaps most prominently aspirin, which is O-acetyl salicylic acid, which have been studied pharmacokinetically in countless scientific papers. It is well established that these sorts of esters are rapidly hydrolyzed in vivo, and that hydrolysis can be affected both enzymatically in the liver or in the blood, or non-enzymatically in the stomach. The reason people are interested in this hydrolysis question is if these four acetoxytryptamines were not hydrolyzed, then maybe they are entirely different drugs. Maybe they have different types of activity. And if you look online, you can find a tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence to support that there are dramatic differences between the 4-acetoxytryptamines and the 4-hydroxytryptamines. But you can find people saying all kinds of shit. And just because people say something doesn't mean that it's true. This was... A big part of the psychedelic discourse after the introduction of 4-ACO-DMT, people would say, oh, yeah, I mean, it's quite obvious that 4-ACO-DMT is a completely different drug. Look, I mean, the, the colors are more pastel. And the head trip doesn't have the same amount of emotional depth. Clearly, this is a completely different drug. But how rigorously were these conclusions being drawn? How many experiments were they doing? Were they double-blind? Could this have been placebo? I think very easily it could have been a result of the sorts of expectations that people brought to the action of these substances. Okay, so then the next question is, are there known differences of any kind? The first and most obvious answer is that there is a difference in terms of the potency of these compounds by weight because the acetate ester is adding bulk to the molecule, meaning 20 milligrams of 4-hydroxy-MET fumarate contains more molecular entities, more 
individual molecules and 20 milligrams of 4-acetoxy-MET fumarate. And accordingly, if it is merely acting as a prodrug, you would expect the 4-acetoxy-MET fumarate to be about 9% less potent by weight. So if you're looking for bang for your buck, you could make an argument that you're getting more molecule in the 4-hydroxy-tryptamine relative to the acetoxy because it's often the case that vendors will sell both variants. But even this supposition contains additional complexity because even if these compounds are merely and exclusively acting as prodrugs that are completely hydrolyzed in vivo, there's still the possibility that the acetate ester confers pharmacokinetic advantages. We know that the 4-hydroxytryptamines are unstable. Maybe this increases their stability in vivo. And more obviously, the acetate ester is going to be less polar, so it may also facilitate entry into the brain. It's sometimes the case that prodrugs are actually more potent than their active metabolites due to these pharmacokinetic advantages. A notable example would be L-DOPA, which is a prodrug for dopamine, but if dopamine is administered orally, it doesn't even enter the brain. So the pro-moiety is necessary to confer activity to the drug. Heroin is sometimes incorrectly described as a pro-drug for morphine. It's actually a pro-drug for 6-monoacetylmorphine, but in that case, you are actually making the opioid quite a bit stronger than morphine with the addition of these acetate esters. So this is not inconceivable. The first and most obvious advantage is that the acetoxy esters of these 4-hydroxytryptamines appear to be much more stable than the 4-hydroxytryptamines. 4-hydroxytryptamines are infamously unstable compounds. I have personally analyzed samples of 4-ACO-DMT fumarate that are over a decade old that contained no detectable silicon on mass spec. So when stored dry in an amber vial in the cold, these are incredibly stable substances. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second, if this stuff is so stable, then why are you certain that it's going to be completely hydrolyzed in vivo? Well, there's a number of different forms of evidence for this. One is that the metabolism has been studied in vitro with human liver microsomes, and they established that 4-ACO-DMT is metabolized to 4-hydroxy-DMT, i.e. silicin. They claim in this paper that it has slightly different metabolites than silicin, specifically beta-hydroxysilicin, but they didn't do a experiment with silicin in the same paper, so I would like to see under these exact circumstances if that is truly the case. That's the first piece of evidence. It makes sense chemically and enzymatically, and it's even been observed experimentally. The second piece of evidence is that people have done pharmacology work on the 4-acetoxytryptamines and compared them to the 4-hydroxytryptamines in vitro. And interestingly, the 4-acetoxytryptamines do bind to 5-HT2A and act as agonists. Adam Halberstadt has a great publication where he examines the affinity, potency, and efficacy of a variety of different 4-acetoxytryptamines and compares them to their 4-hydroxy counterparts. And it varies from compound to compound, but the general trend is that the 4-acetoxytryptamines are less potent 
in terms of their efficacy at 2A and their affinity than the 4-hydroxy counterparts. Sometimes a lot less potent, like 4-acetoxy-MIPT is much less potent than 4-hydroxy-MIPT, and sometimes it's somewhat comparable. Another piece of evidence is that people have compared them in head twitch response studies. And what they've found is that the potency of the 4-acetoxy tryptamines and the 4-hydroxy tryptamines in terms of eliciting the head twitch response is comparable. In some instances, they were a little bit more potent. In some instances, they were a little bit less potent. But in most of these cases, it fell within the range of experimental error. Actually, 4-acetoxy MET was one example where the 4-hydroxy was quite a bit more potent than the 4-acetoxy. But again, like I said, this fell into the range of experimental error, just barely. So is it possible that the 4-acetoxy esters are surviving metabolic and chemical hydrolysis, entering the brain, and acting as completely different drugs? Yes, it's possible. Do I think that that likely plays a major role in the psychopharmacology of the 4-acetoxytryptamines? Probably not. It's possible, but it's established that they're hydrolyzed, and it's established that in most instances, the 4-acetoxytryptamine is quite a bit less potent than the 4-hydroxytryptamine in terms of their affinity, potency, and efficacy at 2A in vitro. So if this were a major contributor, you would see more evidence that there is a major potency difference between the two. But that's not really what people report. They usually report these more nuanced qualitative differences, like one is pastel and the other isn't, or one has a mindfuck and the other doesn't. So I think it's within the realm of possibility. I also think that the majority of these reports dramatically exaggerate the differences and this is likely due to suggestion and wishful thinking and a number of other factors. It's worth investigating, though, because in some of these compounds, for example, 4-ACO-DPT, the potency is not that far down relative to the 4-hydroxy counterpart. So there are instances, and probably depending on the various other substituents, some of these may have increased or decreased propensities for metabolic hydrolysis. And so it's conceivable. It is conceivable that there could be a difference. I just haven't seen strong evidence of it in my own experiences. And I don't think that there's any research that strongly supports there being a difference, although it wouldn't blow my mind if there was a small difference. There's a concept in forensics called Locard's exchange principle, which is that every contact leaves a trace. The idea being that anyone going anywhere doing anything will leave some evidence behind. And I think that there's something analogous in pharmacology. Any chemical difference, whether it's a crystal polymorph or a salt difference or a different pro-moiety is going to slightly change the pharmacokinetics of the drug and could conceivably even change the pharmacodynamics. Everything changes everything. But the real question is, is this perceptible? Is this something that people could truly recognize? And my guess is that in a double-blind, placebo-controlled experiment, people could not tell the difference between 4-ACO-MET and 4-hydroxy-MET. But Maybe I'm wrong. 
This podcast is brought to you by Sheath, a state-of-the-art undergarment. Tailored from spandex and modal, Sheath features a patented dual-pouch design for genital compartmentalization. The primary pouch cradles the scrotal sac, providing light testicular support and segregating the scrotum from the thighs and perineum, as well as the head and shaft, which are isolated in a secondary pouch featuring a micturition aperture. The separation of thighs, testicles, and shaft limits skin-to-skin contact, keeping those wearing sheath dual pouch underwear less vulnerable to chafing and soothed by cooling airflow throughout the anogenital region. The secondary shaft enclosure can also accommodate other items for a natural look that is both aesthetically pleasing and discreet. Thank you, Sheath, for your sponsorship. Use the promo code HAMILTON for 20% off Sheath underwear technology. Hi, Hamilton. I was wondering if you know the history or the reasons why phenylacetone is regulated as a Schedule II controlled substance rather than being listed as a regular chemical precursor. It's strange to me because I can't think of any other examples of non-psychoactive scheduled substances. Yes, this is a good and I think important observation. And there's a, a couple of explanations that I can think of for why this is the case. You are correct in identifying phenylacetone as an unusual example of a controlled substance that in and of itself is not known to exhibit any type of psychoactivity. For those that don't know, phenylacetone is the precursor for a number of different amphetamine compounds or one precursor. It can be converted to amphetamine or methamphetamine or N-ethylamphetamine or a number of other things in a single reductive amination step. It has no psychoactivity that I am aware of, although I don't doubt that if you drank, you know, a liter of it, it would have some kind of biological effect. And the question is, if methamphetamine is a controlled substance and amphetamine is a controlled substance and N-ethylamphetamine is a controlled substance, if all of the resultant chemicals that can be produced from phenylacetone are already controlled substances, why did they make phenylacetone a Schedule II controlled substance in 1979? That I should point out is that there are actually other examples of this. In 1978, PCC, which is the nitrile intermediate for PCP and a variety of other aryl cyclohexylamines, was also placed in Schedule II, as was PCH, also sometimes referred to as PCA, which is the primary amine, 1-phenylcyclohexylamine. PCA and PCC are also either non-psychoactive or minimally psychoactive. They certainly are not chemicals that have ever been encountered on the street as drugs of abuse. So now we have three non-psychoactive drugs that are Schedule II controlled substances. And if you go back a bit further, you can find 2,5-dimethoxyamphetamine, which was placed in Schedule I. Now, how is that justified? Was 2,5-DMA ever a drug of abuse? Again, no. In this instance, it is psychoactive, but I think it has only been encountered on the street maybe one time. And again, it's not being controlled because there was ever an epidemic of 2,5-dimethoxyamphetamine on the street. It's because it is the precursor for DOB. Okay, so now we're up to four molecules that are either non-psychoactive or effectively non-psychoactive that have been controlled 
merely because they are precursors for controlled substances. But it didn't stop there. In 2010, the fentanyl precursor ANPP was placed in Schedule II, and in 2012, 2CH, the precursor for 2CB, was placed in Schedule I. Although, interestingly, it doesn't appear on all of the DEA's lists of controlled substances, which is a shocking testament to how out of control the prohibition of these substances has gotten. The DEA themselves cannot keep track of everything that they are controlling. So why are they taking all these controlled substance precursors and regulating them under the Controlled Substances Act in schedules that are designated for drugs with a high abuse potential? This is contrary to the already ridiculous guidelines of the scheduling system. These are not drugs with a high potential for abuse. So what's going on? And I hope everyone is sitting down uh, because, uh, yeah, buckle your seatbelts. I'm, I think I'm going to unleash a, a, a harsh truth on you all. To the best of my understanding, the reason that this is happening is because none of this makes sense and because they can get away with it. In 2012, who stood up for 2CH? I didn't. Anyone listening to this, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you probably didn't either. They slid it in. No one objected. They got away with it. And that's immensely obnoxious. It's actually, I think, sort of emblematic of the issues with the Controlled Substances Act. You have a drug that is obscure, so obscure that most people probably don't even know that it's a controlled substances, including apparently the people that make the list of controlled substances for the DEA, that is really useful for scientific research, right? It's a, a very important precursor for making a variety of different phenethylamines, which we all know are now being investigated for their medical utility. And now researchers have to use some other synthetic route if they're publishing a process that involves 2CH. And I have personally seen this happen. I have had to do chemistry with a protected 2CH intermediate to avoid moving through a controlled substance. It's fucking ridiculous to have to do this. But if the point is to publish this research, which it is, you can't commit a crime in the process of doing it. And the other reason that this is really ridiculous, sorry, I'm just pointing out that it's ridiculous more than I am really answering your question. But the other reason that this is ridiculous is that in... 1988, there was something called the Chemical Diversion and Trafficking Act. And this was the system where a number of different precursor chemicals were placed on a special list. There's list one chemicals and list two chemicals, sort of analogous to the schedules. But in this instance, the lists are used to identify chemicals of concern for regulation by chemical supply companies. If large quantities of a list one chemical are sold, it is the legal responsibility of a chemical supply company to report that to the DEA. So they already have this in place. They already have a way of regulating these chemicals. Why did they just randomly put two aryl-cyclohexylamine precursors, one amphetamine precursor, and two psychedelic precursors in with the rest of the controlled substances? And my guess is just because they could get away with it, because people didn't object. And that's why it's so important not only to 
keep tabs on everything that the DEA is doing, but to stand up against them when they do things like this. Because you might think, oh yeah, 2CH, who cares, right? Why would I care about the placement of 2CH in Schedule 1? But somewhere down the line, some scientists might be working on a treatment for depression or Parkinson's disease, and they might think, eh, maybe I won't make that compound because I have to go through that whole thing and I have to add some synthetic steps to protect and deprotect and what a nightmare. Maybe I'll just do something else, right? It's a, it's a real hassle. And of course, you could even accidentally break the law because this is so convoluted that even people like me that spend absolutely insane amounts of time reviewing the Controlled Substances Act and the list of controlled substances are often surprised. I was just in researching this question saw that MDOH is a Schedule One controlled substance. I didn't even know that. And I'd done a huge interview with somebody that was making MDOH specifically because they thought it was legal. And, you know, I think this is something that journalists have played into as well. In the book, The Case of the Frozen Addicts, there's a scene where they bust into a lab that's making PCP analogs, but they presumably only got to the step of PCC and darned those diabolical chemists. They got away with it because liberals have prevented us from doing what it takes to maintain law and order. That's kind of the vibe. And so you craft a narrative like that and people think, my word, well, we've got to take it a step back. We've got to make all the precursor chemicals scheduled substances as well. And where does this end, right? If you go down this road to its terminal point, you are going to just indiscriminately make vast swaths of chemical space illegal to work with in a way that will have serious repercussions for science and industry. And this truly is not a hypothetical concern. 2,5-dimethoxyamphetamine was industrially required to produce Polaroid film. I guarantee the fact that it was a Schedule One controlled substance was immensely annoying for the chemists at Polaroid. What about the fact that phenylacetone is a human metabolite of both amphetamine and methamphetamine? Does that mean that every time somebody takes amphetamine or methamphetamine therapeutically prescribed by a physician, that they're enzymatically producing a Schedule II controlled drug? Is that legal? Have their enzymes committed a crime? Have they committed a crime? Has anyone even thought about this? I mean, this is how ridiculous it's gotten, that our enzymes are committing crimes that there are substances in our bodies endogenously like GHB and potentially DMT that are Schedule One controlled substances. I mean, it's really very seriously out of control. And if in 1989, when they started creating these lists of watched chemicals, they decided, all right, never mind, we'll undo that weird stuff that we started in the 1970s where we made 2,5-DMA and PCC and PCH illegal. We're going to undo that. Then at least there would be some internal consistency in their logic. But the fact is they didn't undo that, and they just kept going, making precursors, controlled substances, as if they had abuse potential. This is something that people should be aware of, so I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. This podcast is also brought to you by Lucy Nicotine, a company that makes nicotine pouches, nicotine gum, and nicotine lozenges. I particularly enjoy the apple ice-flavored nicotine pouch. It is a refreshing and well-formulated product. If you don't already use nicotine products, I recommend you don't begin. They're habit-forming. But if you do, 
I think this is the finest nicotine product on the market. Thank you, Lucy. Hey, Hamilton. My question is, how would you go about the legislation of, for example, psychedelics? Would there be a need for a license, something similar to a driver's license? Or would it be just as available as tobacco and alcohol right now? Thank you. So my first issue with this idea is that whether or not it's reasonable, it seems like it's something that is unrealistic. It doesn't seem like it would ever happen. And the reason is simply because there are no other instances of drugs requiring licenses to be used. There's no precedent for drug licensing under non-medical circumstances. This is an idea that has been bandied about since the 1960s. Timothy Leary famously proposed an LSD license. And the idea, of course, is that this would limit the harms associated with the use of psychedelics. It's not an unreasonable idea. And I don't doubt that requiring licenses to purchase psychedelics and maybe even drugs in general could reduce those harms if you had to demonstrate a basic understanding of the drug and its effects. The question then is, would there be penalties associated with using these substances without a license? Presumably there would be, otherwise no one would bother with getting the licenses. And does this promote a sort of paternalistic or elitist attitude toward the use of psychedelics? I feel sort of conflicted about things like this because you're constantly trying to balance freedom and safety. Things that make us more free can make us less safe, and things that make us more safe can make us less free. In order to live in a free society, you have to accept dangers associated with that freedom, whether it's using drugs or having sex or saying things publicly that will cause problems of one kind or another. So if you're asking me honestly, seriously, do I think there should be licenses to use psychedelics? No, I don't think so. I love Timothy Leary. I get where he was coming from with this idea of LSD licenses. It has a certain rationality to it, but I think licenses should only be required under circumstances where there is a high potential of harm to others. So that's why driver's licenses matter, because when you drive, you're not just risking your own safety, you're risking the safety of others. Again, I think gun licenses make sense for the same reason. You're not just risking your own safety, you're risking the safety of others or liquor licenses because you're distributing a substance to others. So when others are involved, licenses are extremely important. But when you're talking about drug use, a personal choice, I think that licensure is not something that I would consider desirable. I would prefer to live in a society where education is integrated to such an extent that licenses are not necessary. This podcast is also brought to you by Matcha.com. 
grab a traditional matcha bowl or your favorite mug and enjoy a hot cup of matcha first thing in the morning. I don't drink coffee, but I think matcha is a wonderful way to start the day. It contains L-theanine, it contains caffeine, which is what I'm most interested in, and it has all sorts of purported health benefits. Matcha.com was founded by psychedelic pioneer Dr. Andrew Weil. All of their matcha is imported from Japan and third-party tested for heavy metals. It's delicious, probably healthy, and certainly stimulating. So enjoy a cup of matcha from matcha.com. Hi, Hamilton. I hope you're doing well. I wanted to ask you, what do you make of Dr. John Mack's opinions on the alien abduction phenomenon? I remember you mentioning in the past that you knew him to some degree growing up, and I just wanted to ask if you had any personal insights on, on him as a person. I think it is amazingly strange that a former head of psychiatry at Harvard Medical would be invested in such a fringe topic. Yes, I did know John Mack growing up. He was a family friend, and I agree, he was a truly remarkable person. For those not familiar with John Mack, he was a psychiatrist. He was the head of the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of T.E. Lawrence, and he was also the foremost expert on alien abduction from a psychiatric perspective, and also I think a lesser known fact about him was that he was very interested in psychedelics. So yeah, it's really weird. It's been a while since I've read Abduction, and that's the only one of John Mack's books that I actually have read, but my feeling about John Mack, at least in terms of how he publicly presented his views on alien abduction phenomena, was a sort of agnostic view or a, a consequentialist view, which was to say, like, it doesn't matter whether aliens are real. It doesn't matter whether or not people are being abducted. All that matters is that people think they are being abducted, and it's causing psychological distress. And it is the responsibility of the clinician to help people deal with that distress. And in his perspective, he felt the best therapeutic effect could be achieved via believing the people who had had these experiences, not interrogating the validity of their abduction, but assuming that what they were saying was true and helping them deal with the reality of their experience. There's actually a really interesting parallel approach that you see in the realm of treatment of dementia. So until the 80s or 90s, lying to patients who had dementia was discouraged. And there was something called reality orientation that was the typical mode of dealing with dementia-associated delusions. So if you have somebody with Alzheimer's disease and their wife is dead and they say, where is my wife? You say, your wife is dead. And they grieve and then 20 minutes go by and they say, where is my wife? And you say, your wife is dead. And then they grieve again and you continue doing this. At some point, a alternative approach was pursued which is called therapeutic deception or validation therapy. There was actually a, an article about this in the New York Times recently, which I recommend, called When My Father Got Alzheimer's, I Had to Learn to Lie to Him. So the therapeutic deception technique is the opposite of reality orientation. Instead of saying, your wife is dead, you say, your wife is at the store. She'll be back soon. 
Your wife is at the store. She'll be back soon. And is that true? No, their wife is dead. But you spare them the pain of having to grieve the loss of their wife repeatedly due to their amnesia or dementia or whatever. So John Mack felt, I believe, that interrogating the reality of the abduction phenomena was not beneficial to the patients. It was better to engage in what could be classified as a form of validation therapy to say, yes, you were abducted and what did it mean to you? And how are you going to go forward? And how are we going to help you in the wake of this experience? And I know for a fact that many of the patients that he treated considered his therapy to be life-saving. I went to his memorial service, and I think I talked about this on a previous podcast. It was actually very moving seeing all these crying abductees who credited John Mack with saving their lives. Now, I think that the story is actually a little bit more complicated than that. I do think that John Mack was not just engaging in a form of therapeutic deception. I think that he actually did believe in aliens and alien abduction. But again, you could argue that that was also inconsequential because whether or not he believed in it and whether or not his patients had truly been abducted, the point was that they were in distress and he had a process for helping them with their distress that worked. The concept of therapeutic deception is really complicated because there are a lot of psychological disorders that include delusions of one kind or another. And you can also imagine many circumstances where treating those delusions as if they are true simply because the patient claims that they have experienced it and one could argue that felt experience is reality even if it is disconnected from the real world. But you can imagine how this could cause problems, right? An example might be any situation where there are criminal penalties associated with the delusion, right? If somebody says, my father was molesting me with his coworkers in the context of a satanic ritual, and you say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that that happened, um, well, that's real, right? There could be criminal penalties for a person who's being falsely accused, again, assuming that they did not uh, sexually abuse them in a satanic ritual. So th this is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and there are clearly many instances where therapeutic deception could be extremely dangerous. But even in the, the example that I just gave, which is the subject of a really great book by Lawrence Wright called Remembering Satan, toward the end of the book, he makes an argument, which is that even if the core claims made by the daughter of this cop named Paul Ingram were false, there was some evidence to suggest that she had undergone some kind of sexual abuse. And this may have been some way of fictionalizing a real trauma that she'd experienced. And this is probably what is happening with alien abduction as well. This is some kind of distorted way of reinterpreting a different type of trauma. Presumably, a psychologically healthy person is not going to be claiming that they were abducted and molested by extraterrestrial intelligence, right? That's not something that healthy people do unless they were uh, abducted by aliens. But I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I don't think that aliens actually abduct people. So what John Mack did was 
controversial. I think we can imagine lots of instances where that sort of therapeutic deception, if we want to call it that, could be damaging. But I think that his process actually was extremely helpful for people. Um, this is a, a topic that appears throughout psychology and psychiatry. There's a, another book that engages with these issues called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti that I've talked about on previous podcasts. And the psychologist who wrote that book, Milton Rokic, was going through a similar issue. You have people, they're saying they are Jesus Christ. What do you do? Do you say, yes, you are Jesus Christ? Do you convince them, no, you're not Jesus Christ? Look at all of this evidence that you are not Jesus Christ. And the complicated aspect of this is there is no right answer. It depends on the circumstances and the patient. There are probably situations where validation would help, and there are probably situations where validation might hurt. So I do think that John Mack believed in alien abduction, and I think he helped a lot of people, but obviously his work was controversial and many people do not agree with his methods. And I think I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but just to say it because it's a funny thing. When I was a young child, he told me to take LSD and listen to Glenn Gould play the Goldberg Variations, which I later did. So interesting guy, brilliant guy, weird guy, and yeah. This podcast is also brought to you by the Apollo. The Apollo is a wearable bracelet or anklet, whichever you prefer, that produces a vibrating frequency that can achieve a number of different effects depending on how you set the device. It can be stimulating to wake up in the morning or relaxing at the end of the day. Sometimes I wear it while I'm sleeping. Sometimes I wear it while I'm driving. I find the effect really nice. It's sort of like strapping a purring kitten to your ankle. And I know that it sounds a little bit weird, but if you enjoy massage, if you enjoy relaxing, vibrating chairs, I think that this is in that vein of an effect. It feels really nice and calming, and it's a great way of non-pharmacologically altering your mood. This is a product that was created by a psychiatrist named Dr. David Rabin after years of research, and I think it's a really interesting device. So if you want to learn more about the Apollo, go to apolloneuro.com. Thank you for the sponsorship, Apollo. At one point, you posted on Twitter that you were using 2CE to study astronomy. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit, uh, either specifically or more general, about um, studying or reading on psychedelics as opposed to more kind of neutral stimulants. So I don't remember the exact tweet that you're referring to, but I am confident that I was not referring to 2CE, but rather 2CD. They're very similar substances, but 2CD has a methyl group in the four position and 2CE has an ethyl group. 2CE is a much stronger psychedelic than 2CD. And the idea behind using 2CD as a nootropic can be traced to none other than the great late Daryl Lemaire. He was very interested in the idea that certain phenethylamine psychedelics could be used as nootropics or smart drugs. And when I was interviewing him and visiting his home, he had lots of index cards of foreign languages and different tools that he'd been using to teach himself German and various chemistry concepts using 2CD. Now, I first read about this in Daryl Lemaire's smart drugs pamphlet. What really intrigued me about the idea of using psychedelics as cognitive enhancers was I had recently read a book by the Soviet 
neuropsychologist Alexander Luria called Mind of a Nemonist. And this book is about Luria's study of a Soviet journalist named Solomon Shershevsky, who had a remarkable photographic memory. This book could be considered a sort of predecessor to the more well-known Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Foer. Both of these books I recommend. And what you find when you study people who have these extraordinarily good memories, short of people like the mega savant Kim Peek, who is born without a corpus callosum, short of you know major neuroanatomical differences, what you find is that all of these nemonists or photographic memory possessors or savants is that they're all synesthetes, which is to say they all have synesthesia and a sort of multi-sensory cross-linking of information. They smell sounds and hear colors. Now, I'm sure you could come up with all sorts of sophisticated neurological explanations for why synesthesia might promote photographic memory. But I think it also makes a sort of intuitive sense without even getting into neuroanatomy or any more complicated explanation. If you're trying to remember something, the more sensory handles you have to retrieve a piece of information, the more likely it is that you can potentially remember that. So if you're trying to remember a location and that location has an associated smell and an associated sound and an associated texture, then you have more ways of potentially retrieving that information. And this is also, I think, the basis of the memory palace technique. You can get into, again, more complicated explanations about how it harnesses the power of spatial memory in order to help sort and recall information. But I think on a more basic level, when you use the memory palace technique, which for those that don't know, is creating a mental palace or a mental space to spatially locate information, what it does is it forces you to think of more ways of classifying a given piece of information. You can just create these weird mnemonic devices that help you remember things because they are linking information in absurd and memorable ways, right? Like I remember when I was taking organic chemistry, there was a professor and he said, you want to know how to remember the difference between E and Z isomers? Well, you can remember it because the hydrogens on Z isomers are Z-Zame-Zide. And then he looked at everyone and said, and you'll never forget it. And I never did. Why? I don't know. It's not especially funny, but Z-Zame-Zide just stuck in my head as, okay, yeah, that, that works. So it's about, and that's actually not like a, a synesthetic classification of information exactly, but it kind of is because you're thinking about the sound and it certainly is more memorable than somebody telling you, oh, well, Z stands for Zusammen, which is the German word for together. That you'll definitely forget, but Zeid, you will remember. So I saw psychedelics as a potential way of 
promoting synesthesia, which is something that psychedelics do, I thought if psychedelics promote synesthesia, synesthesia promotes memory, couldn't you use psychedelics to improve memory via induction of synesthesia and promotion of multisensory cross-linking of information? It makes sense hypothetically. In practice, I don't think it really works that well because the doses of psychedelics required to induce synesthesia are high enough that they will probably promote amnesia via other mechanisms. But I think the idea of it is good. And did I have some kind of miraculous result memorizing the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram on 2CD? No, I was able to memorize it for this astronomy class that I was taking, but I don't know that it was dramatically better than it would have been if I hadn't taken a low five to 10 milligram dose of 2CD beforehand. So, yeah. We got the rectal kratom guy right off camera right now. I mean, this is what you're telling me. I don't know if that's boofing kratom. It's become a meme on the internet. This is a kratom tea product. It's not intended for boofing. Even if the pH of the human rectum is between seven and eight, and the pKa of metragenine is 8.1. That's just not really relevant here. This is a tea consumption in hot water. That's what it's for. That's what it should be used for. If you want this tea, you can get it at toptreeherbs.com. Hey, Hamilton. My question is, how do you explain people having the same hallucinations while they're on psychedelics? Like, you could be having the same hallucination, but not talking about it, but you're sort of seeing the same thing. When you go into a K-hole, you can, like, see each other. Or when you blast off with DMT, you can end up being there with that person and seeing the same things. So how do you explain that? So I, I I'm interested in why people find this concept so interesting because there's no question that the concept of shared hallucinations is immensely interesting for a lot of people it's one of the things that i have been getting messages about for years how do you explain shared hallucinations um i think people like the concept of shared hallucinations because it almost seems to be evidence of the supernatural same thing with machine elves, same thing with dreams predicting the future. They kind of fall into this category of if it's real, doesn't this mean that there's something beyond what we understand of the world or something? I think it has uh, metaphysical implications that go beyond the question of how do shared hallucinations exist? And my short answer is I don't think they exist. I don't think they exist because they're unverifiable, because you cannot experience another person's consciousness to truly confirm that the experience is shared. And people are very vulnerable to suggestion. It's so easy to do this. And on top of that, if you are sharing an environment with somebody and sharing a drug with somebody, it seems fully possible that the same environmental stimuli might induce an effect in both of you that could be somewhat similar, yet it is not a shared hallucination, right? Like two people could be at a beach taking a psychedelic, laying in the sand with their eyes closed, listening to the water, and maybe 
both of them hear an eagle and have a vision of an eagle or something like that, right? Is that really a shared hallucination or is that two people responding to the same environmental stimulus? So I know they're very commonly reported. I know that people uh, contact me about this all the time. I am skeptical. I'm skeptical because it can't be verified and because I think people want it to be true. And that's always a problem. You know, as soon as you want something to be the case, then there will be a confirmation bias. People, for whatever reason, want shared hallucinations to exist. And so they could subtly manipulate each other's experiences to make them feel more congruent because wouldn't it be cooler for it to be a shared hallucination than a subtly different hallucination like oh you saw an eagle well i kind of saw more of a seagull thing but it's kind of eagle-like so it's just easier and i think more interesting to suggest that there's a shared experience that can't be verified so i know that that's like a stem lord rationalist response i don't like being that guy it's but at the same time i think it's better to regard these things skeptically than to um uncritically assume that they're true because they're very likely not true hi hamilton i really enjoyed your interviews with youtubers like crime pays babani doesn't and the chemist and i'm wondering selfishly if you're interested in taking it a step further and making chemistry ASMR videos, just spitballing here, but it might be a way to get remonetized. Thanks. Thank you so much for the question. It's a really fun, nice question for you to ask. And it reminds me of this nice 300 milliliter round bottom borosilicate flask that I have and just like give it a little tap. It's such a nice tap. Tap tap tap. Tap 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 tap. And if I give it a little blow it it makes a really nice sound. I'm gonna give it a little gentle blow. That sounds nice. 